0: Well, again, good evening and welcome to this second installment of Walter Brueggemann's Prophetic Imagination. Last week, uh, a very kind member of the congregation came up to me and said, Who who is Walter Brueggemann? (laughs) Who is this guy that you're so excited about? Well, uh, I want to give you just a little snapshot of who he is. Uh, He is right there. he, is, he will turn 91 this year, uh, Professor Emeritus of Old Testament. He was, for most of his career, uh, Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. That's in Decatur, Georgia. It's a, a PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA uh, seminary. Very, it's a world-renowned, very uh, respected uh, theological school. And uh, he is one of the reasons for that. Uh, he says, I believe in the book early on, um, thinking back after 40 years, that this is the book that really gave him a voice. It's where he found his voice. Um, and he had already been a scholar for some time. I think he was about my age, maybe a little younger than I am, when he wrote the book. Um, but he's he's wonderful professor widely beloved much sought after speaker writer teacher of course um and uh also I wanted to point you guys uh in the direction of a podcast so th- this book is a is a it's not a long book but it's a thick book and it helps to have aids and I I'm trying to imagine my role in this as giving you uh, not a rehash of the book so much as examples. So just a kind of uh, I want to serve you as a guide and provide examples uh, or at least litter what I'm saying with demonstrations, stories, examples of what this looks like in the world. Um, But. Uh, If you would like an additional guide, I want to recommend a podcast uh, that Dorothy Porter shared with me. Uh, I had begun. I had drew it up on my podcast list. I'd already started listening to it years ago and forgot to finish it. (laughs) But it's a podcast from the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. You can look it up. Walter Brueggemann, The Prophetic Imagination is the name of the podcast. It's about 45 minutes. And uh, it, it's a 45 minute kind of Cliff's notes of this book and his theology and uh, how to think about prophets and prophecy. So, if you're riding down the road and you want a reprise or a review or at least someone to make sense of this book for you, <laughs> uh, that would be a wise use of time. So, a brief recap of last week. We introduced some big themes, and I've offered you a, uh, not an outline, but a, a kind of highlight reel from last week, drawing on the, the points I was trying to make, the points he makes, uh, some of the quotes from the book. I'll offer one of these each week, so from now on, you'll come in, you'll see this paper, and you'll get a, a, something to take home. Uh, to help you process what we're talking about. Again, this is, uh, this is some heavier lifting than I have offered, uh, but I believe uh, deep down that this kind of work, if you really stick with it, you work at it, you try to understand it, it will open not only your mind but your heart, I think, to enjoy the Christian faith even more. This book was for me a, a, a threshold in my faith. When you hear Apostle Paul and, and Romans talking about uh, moving from faith to faith, I think he's talking about growing faithfully. You're not always the same kind of faithful person you, you were when you were baptized. By the time you're a generation or two removed from your own baptism, you're probably a different kind of faithful person. You move from faith to faith. Well, this is one of those watershed books for me that helped me move from faith to faith uh, and help make Christianity more exciting for me, more inclined. It it made me more inclined to think of it as adventure. Uh, It continues to shape how I pastor, how I preach. uh, But beyond what I do, you know, as my vocation, uh, it helps me enjoy my life every day uh, and gives me a lens through which to see what's really happening in the world so it's part of my goal to help equip you in a similar way and maybe you will have a similar kind of epiphany that I did if if you take the same kind of deep dive Uh, so that's my goal by the end of this uh, five weeks that you'll walk away thinking I really have not thought about the Christian faith that way And now I can kind of see myself in in, in this grand story in a way that's exciting to me, or more exciting to me. So that's what I hope. Uh, We talked last time, uh, introducing, again, terms, themes. The phrase prophetic imagination has to do with an alternative community. He uses that word a lot in the first chapter, alternative. This is something different. And that corresponds to the uh, New, New Testament idea. Well, both Old and New Testament ideas of faith communities. Uh, Israel is set apart. It's a unique nation among nations. Christians' church is set apart. Uh, we are a, a holy people. We're a, a priesthood. We're we're also described as aliens and exiles. We're we're outside, We're in. The world, but we're not of the world. Uh, not called to be anyway. We are alternative. That's just a—it's a parallel word that he uses, but it it has deep resonance with scriptural language about being called out, um, God's own, God's chosen. A prophet is a spokesperson. Um, it's a, a an interpreter. Um, a third of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is, is composed of the Nevi'im. Those are the prophets. Uh, the, uh, when, when we talk about prophetic, and I think this is an important distinction to make because this, this can cause confusion. When Brueggemann is talking about prophetic, he's not necessarily trying to evoke a picture of someone who's predicting the future. And he's not just trying to evoke a picture of somebody who is um, just all about social justice. It includes that, much of that. He's talking about instead a state of mind, a different way of seeing the world, thinking about the world. um, a, A prophetic, something prophetic can be an individual. A community can also be prophetic. And he goes through great pains at the end of the book. And I do, I do encourage you to, if you have the book, you might start at the end and read uh, the, the, the post uh, chapter, the, like the final chapter that's a part of the 40th anniversary edition. Uh, you might read that and then the last chapter first. Um, but he goes to, to great pains to say that... Uh, it's not just about preaching. It's not just about marching. Uh, a, a Bible study can be prophetic, a prophetic message. It can be a, a, a Bible study group can be a prophetic community. Uh, a congregation can be a pre- prophetic community. Um, a, a, a ministry within the congregation can be prophetic. A person within the congregation A person outside of the congregation or outside of church or faith altogether. Remember, uh, Jesus said, if if these weren't shouting, the very rocks would shout out to get my message out. Um, So prophetic uh, is a more expansive term uh, than conventional thinking would lead us to believe. It has much more to do with standing in the present and finding or expressing the language of uh, critique and hope that calls forth a different kind of future, so the words help us imagine a new future in the midst of the old uh, and uh, and that uh, that language if you you heard uh, the Premier prophetic speech last week, I Have a Dream, the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King. Uh, he's not saying precisely what will happen. He's saying what can happen. He's casting a vision with poetry, with lyrics, um, metaphors, a dream. A dream is a metaphor. And, uh, and he's saying we can get to this dream if we're faithful. It might happen. It might not. But uh, I'm called to express this publicly so that uh, we can all catch on to this dream and begin to live towards it. Um, what is prophetic imagination composed of? Well, it's composed of criticizing. And by that, he doesn't mean lambasting. Um. He, he, he means uh, piercing, taking the official narrative of the way things are given to us by people in power and piercing it with uh, critique, um, lament, grief, tears. We'll talk more about that tonight. Proph- uh, prophetic imagination is also so we have critique, prophetic critique. It's also composed of energizing. Uh, energizing has to do with a, a God recognizing that God is free. Um, this is not a God who's contained. Um, this is not a God who's just dealing with uh, war, not just a God of fertility, not just a, a you know, God of, uh, wealth, uh, power, God of the ocean. This is a God of free. We, we don't know where this God might go. We don't know what this God might do with us. This God is free. Uh, and remember last week I told you even God's very name is free. We don't even know how to pronounce it. Yahweh. Uh, Jews don't even write it. They 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 and they don't even say it. Um, they say Adonai, for example, instead. It's that holy. It's God is free. And we can't tell where God might. Go or where God might take us. Very different imagination of God. Uh, And Israel, the Hebrew people, are the only people to think of God in that way ever. They're the first. Uh, So energizing has to do with God being free. God being with us. God takes sides, remember? God's not diplomatic. God's not neutral. God is not the journalist who says... Um, all right, well, this person who did this says this, and now I've got to get the other side. To, you know, I've got to get the re- Republican's view, and I've got to get the Democrat's view to be fair. Um, I've got to get the rich person's view. I've got to get the poor person's view to be fair. Uh, I've got to get the black person's view. I've got to get the white person's view to, to balance things out and be fair. God's free to take a side. <laughs> In the, in the Exodus story, God takes a side uh, that's energizing for the, for the Hebrews to recognize that the, the God of all creation is on their side and is going to deliver them. That gives them, that, that energizes them, it empowers them, it gives them courage. Uh, and, and then uh, God's energizing has to do with sharing God's freedom. Um, God is free, but God shares God's freedom with us. God imparts God's freedom to the Hebrew people, and they become free. It gives them energy. Does anyone remember what the goal of prophetic uh, imagination is? Related to this church? In, in, in relation to Brueggemann's work. I think Project Aspire. <laughs> yeah. Project Aspire. Um, I, I think that's certainly an expression uh, and we hope to, that it will be more of an expression of prophetic ministry. Um, I'm thinking of doxology. So, so prophetic imagination, the goal is to sing and to dance. In fact, I think one member really took me to heart. Uh, and on Sunday at the end of worship gave me a dancing Jesus. <laughs> I've got a little, I love Christian kitschy stuff. And he, if you get a, you got to come up here and look at this guy later. He looks like he's doing the Carlton. You know the Carlton? I can't do the Carlton, but. And then it came with uh, disciples doing a Congo line. And, uh, and uh, some uh, instructions. One of which uh, has to do with a dance called the Lazarus Lurch. The T sorry the tenth step of the, the lazarus lurch is remember it's good to be alive and show it with jazz hands so uh, that's uh I'm sure walter Brueggemann w- would encourage this dancing Jesus okay tonight we're going to talk about the royal consciousness uh, which he mentions in chapter one but this is this is a, a deeper dive into the term. The royal consciousness is the uh, the imagination out of which a prophetic imagination, from which a prophetic imagination distinguishes itself. So, the royal consciousness is the way that Pharaoh thinks. The way that uh, eventually the king of Israel will think, Solomon. Uh, Brueggemann is hard on on King Solomon. Uh, he his uh, re, his I, w- I don't want to say regime, but his tenure as ruler of Israel. Uh, Brueggemann describes in many ways as a rejection of the free. Radical past and the origins of uh, Israel's birth. Um, the royal consciousness is the way Herod thinks, the way Pilate thinks. It's the, it's the imagination of Babylon. So if you read Revelation, Babylon uh, is the enemy, uh, the oppressor, the power that uh, God is going to, to finally vanquish. Um, if you took my class last May about the, the principalities and the powers, um, the, they are the, the the royal consciousness is the way the rulers and the authorities think. Um, at the end of this new version of the book, he says if he could write this again, he might uh, he would actually would replace the phrase royal consciousness with. The word totalism, having seen what uh, late state, what he calls late stage capitalism has done to uh, America, has done to the world of the last 45 years uh, since this book was written. uh, It's easier to see how our economy commodifies everything. Everything is a commodity. Uh, Land, people. Creation, uh, it, you can make money off any of it. I'm going to give you an example in just a little bit of people commodifying Martin Luther King Jr.'s preaching. It's incredible, the the, uh, the totalism of the royal consciousness. You can't escape it. Uh, you can't move away from it. You can't move to a different country to get away from it. You can move to a different country to experience different expressions of it. But you can't escape totalism unless you move to the woods in northern Canada. But even then, uh, the effects of the royal consciousness, the consequences of the royal consciousness, climate change, it's going to find you there too. <laughs> uh, think about, for example, in healthcare. We used to call them doctors, physicians, what are they called now? Providers, which I understand, there are different people in the system that don't have the medical degree that provide care, but still, there's something about that that speaks commodification to me, in my opinion. But I'm right. <laughs> um, I'm not trying to offend you if you if you are a provider, but I, I think the language does put on display uh, an aspect of the way. Profitable medical care has uh, captured our imaginations and changed the way we talk about it. So, um, when I was in Thailand, I'll give you an example of totalism. When I was in Thailand, we went up to the northern part of the country uh, where uh, the red, and black, Lao tribes eked out in existence. Um, the national government of Thailand at the time was taking their land under the auspices of creating national parks. I don't know about that, but the Lahu tribes were losing their land. They were losing their means of uh, growing food and their means of sustaining their communities. There was a prophetic ministry there, uh, a farm in a community called Fong. There were cooperative Baptist missionaries were, were there and learning from local tribes and uh, helping lead uh, establish a, a farm that taught not monoculture farming, which take, takes up lots of space, but polyculture farming, which is much more efficient, much more uh, environmentally friendly. It's uh, much more sustainable. If you don't have, if you're running out of land, you're going to need more polyculture than monoculture. So the totalizing effect of the powers. Uh, created a necessity for this prophetic ministry, teaching people how to use their land more efficiently and preserve their communities. One, there are three aspects of what Bruggemann calls the royal consciousness. The first is an economics of affluence. You see you see this beginning to take effect in, uh, so you have, you start out with this ragtag bunch of Hebrews that have been free from slavery they are trying to survive in the wilderness. They finally get their land and they begin to set up, but become more organized. They have judges. Their communities are ruled over by judges. Then what do they want? A king. A king. Now, I preached last Sunday on Samuel, the young prophet. Samuel grows up. He's very wise. He hears the people say they want a king. He tells God about it. God says, don't worry, it's not you. It's me. (laughs) Uh, They're really offending me. Uh, You need to go back and tell them what they're going to lose by having a king. He's going to take them from them. He's going to take their land. He's going to take their firstborn sons. He's going to employ them in the military and in his courts. And he's going to take your income. He's going to tax you. And the the, the paragraph in that first, first Samuel chapter eight it's a fascinating paragraph. The verb is repeated over and over again: take, 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 take. The king is going to take, 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 and the king is going to keep, keep. Keep and be very wealthy, it's going to be affluent. Now in a way that's going to be, it's going, it, there's going to be some spreading of the wealth but not much, not much, uh, because the king is also going uh, to live fat and happy. So here's Solomon's provision for one day. this is in first Kings. 30 cores of fine flour, and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, hearts, which are kind of deer, uh, gazelles, roebucks, also a kind of deer. I had to look all this up. I didn't know what a heart or a roebuck was. And fatted fowl. That's for one day. <laughs> now, who's raising all of these animals? And whose farms are they coming from? Those tables are not going to have that food because it's going to the government. Uh, that this is how Israel is kind of growing up, but also changing and losing some of its personality, Brugemann would say, losing its prophetic imagination. Um, you will see, uh, I'll say, so economics is affluent, that's one. An example of this in. Relatively recent history. How many of you have read *All Quiet on the Western Front* or seen one of the movie, one of the the old movie or the new movie? Good. Uh, one, uh, especially in the in the novel, uh, and also one of the main motifs of the newest film. You see juxtaposed the earthy, miserable experience of the soldiers with the generals who live uh, in luxury, and they sit at the end of long tables full of, you know, delectable food. Meanwhile, the soldiers are in the trenches, and they're they're miserable and wet, uh, trying to trying not to be killed in the midst of preserving their food from rat infestation. I mean, that's you're getting a little bit of a picture of the inequities of the affluence that is an aspect of the royal consciousness. Okay, so another aspect of the royal conscious consciousness is oppression, a, a politics of oppression. The order of the state, according to Brueggemann, is the overriding agenda of the state. Uh, so again, with the taking and the taking and the keeping, um, and this is a hierarchical affluence. This is not a democracy. This is not a the, the, the affluence. The, the wealth is not decided upon who gets to share it by all the people. It's decided upon by the people in power. Uh, and also... That what accompanies the oppression is, of course, violence. Um, when you think about uh, what happened during colonization, especially, I'll take for example um, the colonization of sub-Saharan Africa, the Congo. Uh, King Leopold of Belgium comes in. He's gruesome uh, violence. Tearing people apart. Decapit, if you've seen uh, Heart of Darkness, it's based on some of the consequences of of what uh, King Leopold did. His legacy lives on. Uh, One of the things that he uh, made popular was um, having people check boxes to identify their ethnicity so that he could divide them up and of course conquer them. Um, If you've ever filled out a bureaucratic form White, black, Latino, all you know, Native American, uh, Alaskan. I mean, there's a whole list of them on the census. You got to check one. You got to get. You got to determine who the people are. Of course, what what happened in Rwanda was Hutu and Tutsi, who had for hundreds of years, if not longer, been collaborative. Uh, tribal communities were told they were different from one another. Uh, and white colonists empowered Hutu over Tutsi for a while, and then would empower the Tutsi over the Hutu, and they learned to hate each other. The, the, the European colonists uh, designed that hatred. They invented it by labeling people to Royal consciousness, a royal imagination determined that these people were to be put in categories and set against one another. So the politics of oppression is part of the royal consciousness. And then third, uh, a static religion. So uh, one of the examples that he gives is that uh, from 1 Kings, there's the old poem uh, that the the temple, I have built thee an exalted house, a place for thee to dwell in forever. Well, this temple was largely built by workers who were conscripted by the king who would have been spending their time uh, farming, nourishing They're raising, nurturing their families. No, they were putting. They were conscripted by the king to work in quarries and dig out huge rocks and form the foundation of the temple. And now we've got God right where we want God. Not free, but on call for the king. Uh, This is. uh, He says you cannot really find one of these without the other two. They all work together. They overlap. They feed into each other. Um, You cannot have a free God and stay in charge. Um, Another more recent example. How how many of you know about uh, the slave Bible that white slave owners created out of the actual Bible? They, uh, They cut out Everything in the New Testament uh, that could conceivably have been used by enslaved people to argue their case that they should be free. There's really not much of it left. Uh, It's like putting it through a shredder, opening the drawer of the shredder and just pulling out shards of paper. That was about all that was left. But that was the slave Bible. You can look this up online and see everything that was cut out. It's incredible. So enslaved people are being given this resource and they think that's the Bible. Uh, And there's just enough in the Bible that you can tweak uh, and take out of context that you can underwrite the source of white power or enslavers. So, uh, static religion. We cannot have a free God. We've got to have a God we can control. We cannot have an embrace of God. We can't have a God who weeps. We've got a, God, a powerful God. We need machismo. Um, another expression of this, you will see, uh, um, not just in megachurches in America, but uh, many congregations in America really have this idea that Jesus has to be strong, like uh, like ripped, tan, surfer Jesus. Um, that's the Jesus we want. We don't want uh, weak, weeping Jesus. Uh, we don't want, uh, the Jesus that the Bible gives us. <laughs> we want strong Jesus, powerful Jesus. We want Jesus who looks like uh, the people in power over us. So, affluence, an economics of affluence, a politics of oppression, and a, a static religion. nah Compone the royal consciousness. Yes, Dave. Is, is in
1: Christ,
0: uh, in God we trust, is that not a bit like static religion? I think so. I mean, in God we trust is the question is that not an expression of static religion? I would argue that it is. Um, I, I can't recapit- recapitulate the, all of the logic that went into adding that, uh, but it certainly was not original. I think it was post-World War II that that was added in... Wasn't that what Eisenhower Eisenhower,
1: brought that in with the idea? Uh, I'm I'm listening to you,
0: but Eisenhower's idea was that the nation we needed a focus on God. That was President Eisenhower that initiated that. the,
1: The day of 56 would match. That was, his, that was his
0: administration during Fifty yeah. I, I think what Brudaman might say is, which which God, what 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 kind of God, and are we prepared to trust in the God that is so free that this God might dismantle the very powers that uh, called forth that phrase to be put in place? Uh, this is. This is the project of prophetic imagination. You have to keep God free. God's going to be free whether we keep him free or not. But but to recognize that God is free. And and will not even be contained uh, or played upon by a motto. So it's a touchy, but yes, I I take your point. Uh, I I don't, I I am not willing to say that it was a, a cynical ploy completely. It has certainly been used as such. One step removed from Christian nationalism. Yes, it has certainly fed into that. I'm going to give you an example. So I started with royal consciousness. Again, Brueggemann said if he could write it again, he would talk about totalism. This is just impossible to escape. Um, you can commodify anything now. I want to play you this commercial. This is a Super Bowl commercial from 2018. Oh. What is am It, it just—it was a—I'm sorry—it's a little bit muddy, but it's—it's an excerpt from a King sermon, saying you—you you don't have to have fancy degrees to be great. Everybody can have a heart to serve, uh, and then it's superimposed over a Dodge truck commercial. So, in other words, King's inspiring language is used to sell a forty-thousand-dollar truck. That's, a, that's an expression or an example of what Brueggemann is calling totalism. It just, it's like a jet engine. It just sucks everything in. E- even the most inspiring speech uh, that's ever graced the American people can be used, commercialized, commodified, turned into, sorry? Cherry picking. Cherry picking, yeah. Okay, so that's chapter two. I'm going to give you a glimpse of chapter three, entitled Prophetic Criticizing and the Embrace of Pathos. So remember, prophetic critique is uh, integral to the activity of prophetic imagination. No prophetic imagination without Prophetic critique. Uh, and critique has to do with not just land, Again, not just lambasting or carping or complaining. Uh, it has to do with piercing the armor. And, and how, did, how do we do that? Well, He says we embrace pathos. So a capacity to grieve. Uh, we have to be willing to weep. To express our pain. Uh, publicly. Public expression of pain... Uh, is disarming. It also cuts across the grain of the official narrative that everything's okay. And why must everything be okay? Because I'm in power and I don't want anything to change that might lead to my not being in power anymore. So everybody, everybody's okay, everything's okay. Remember everybody, you're okay, I'm okay, you, you've got two or three jobs, I don't have a job. Let's keep it this way, and things will be fine. I don't want to hear any complaints. We're going to oppress those who complain. We're going to keep, uh, you know, keep. We're going to tamper down all of the the grieving, and and uh, we're going to make sure everyone knows that this is a well old machine, doesn't need to be critiqued. Uh, everything's fine. Brueggemann says we, the prophetic. Imagination dismantles that narrative. Things are not okay. Uh, there are injustices. Systems we have set up for ourselves leave people out. They marginalize people. Uh, they hurt people. They break up families. Uh, they lead to uh, diminished lives disenfranchised communities and he says that one of the the telltale signs of the uh, royal consciousness is numbness You may have heard me preach about this before how do we how, how do we pierce the numbness um, he says the royal consciousness leads people to numbness, especially about death. And it's the task of prophetic ministry to bring people to engage their experience of suffering and death. Uh, so how do we do that? He talks about uh, imagination and imagination is composed of poetry. Poetry. Lyric, poetry, as opposed to more mechanical speech, um, the corporate memo, for example, uh, certain narr- prose narratives that try to uh, describe a world that, again, is is OK and should not change. The status quo is good. Let's not mess with it. Um, he says the prophetic task uh, uh Vis-a-vis this numbness is, again, threefold. He should have been a preacher. Uh, lots of three-point descriptions. So the first, uh, the first aspect of prophetic imagination going up against numbness is to offer symbols. How do we fight the numbness? We offer symbols that give hope. Uh, so for example, uh, King made the movement, the civil rights movement, a symbol of the exodus. Uh Black Americans were likened to the Hebrews, yearning to be free under the oppressive regime of Pharaoh. Uh, I'm thinking of our own congregation during the uh, Black Lives Matter protests following George Floyd's death. We offered a symbolic expression of solidarity with uh, our black neighbors by... Filling our parking lot with luminaries and praying. Praying for our community. Praying for uh, the, in solidarity with black people who suffer uh, the injustices of our nation. I remember stories of uh, Guy Sales' first week. Guy Sales, if you don't know, my predecessor here, his first week was uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, people came from all around, not just church members. People came to the sanctuary, to the symbol uh, that they, they needed to be with others, to, to grieve with others, to pray. They they came to our church to sit in the sanctuary to grieve, to off, to be to participate in this public expression of pain. That's a prophetic event. Uh. Prophetic task is also to publicly express our fears. When I lived in Durham, you've heard me tell stories. uh, Perhaps you may remember some of my stories of participating in the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. Now in Durham, gun violence deaths uh, are uh, a plague on the city every year, year after year. There are 30 or 40 people who, who die of gun violence. Uh, and there was a group from Lock Street Baptist Church that uh, created an organization to, to change legislation about municipal gun laws. They were successful. They got laws changed. And then the state came in and overruled all the municipal laws. And, uh, and so all of their work was just completely unraveled. They changed gears. They changed their imagination. So we're not going to try to change laws anymore. We're going to simply bring the public expression, the grief of the families who've been affected. So they would go to a family and say a mother of a son who had been shot, ask her permission uh, to hold a prayer vigil at the site of her child's death. A family member's death, and uh, having received such permission, they would invite the community, the neighborhood, her, the, their families, their friends, to come to this event that would be organized prayer vigil. They would light candles. They would read lament psalms. They would pray together. There would be a, a local clergy, might be Christian, Jew, Muslim, uh, someone equipped to lead a congregation would stand and lead the gathering, uh, but the family's experience was paramount. They wanted the family to have an opportunity to speak about the person who was lost in ways, with freedom. Oftentimes a funeral may not be the freest place (laughs) uh, for them to express their pain. This gave them a, a public way, but also a free way to express their pain. Uh, and it would mark the occasion, and also help reclaim the place that their the, their friend or, or family member had died. I actually got to lead one of these. We went to the place that the young man had been shot and killed, and we stood on the blood-stained ground and prayed. And still, all these years later, there's still 25, 30, 40 people a year killed by gun violence in Durham. So you would think that what we're doing is making no difference. But that's not the way to think. We're not talking about it in years or even decades. We're talking about generations, centuries. Uh, the Israelites were enslaved for 250 years. Black Americans were enslaved for 250 years. This takes time. The prophetic imagination takes time. Then there is the uh, speaking metaphorically, but concretely. Candor, not spin. Candor enables uh, a piercing of the armor of numbness. So, who is the paramount example of that in the Old Testament? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, according to Brugemann, the quintessential exemplar of the prophet who cuts through numbness. Uh, Israel was numb to their reality. They were ignoring the consequences of their injustices. They were ignoring the outside threats to their community. Jeremiah was pointing to all of them and crying out. He embodied the pain of those who recognized what was happening. And he preached, he prayed. He was the great poet against numbness. Uh, You may be very familiar with the phrase, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? That's Jeremiah. Uh, He says, uh, Brueggemann says of this question, is there no balm in Gilead? Now is the time not for answers, but for questions that defy answers because the royal answering service no longer functions. Jeremiah is not afraid of tears. Uh, Brueggemann concludes the riddle and inside of biblical faith is the awareness that only anguish leads to life. Only grieving leads to joy. Only embraced endings lead to new beginnings. The grief has to come first. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So I want to leave you with one last film clip of a young woman who, to my way of interpreting... uh, what it looks like to pierce the numbness of the royal consciousness is an exemplar in her own right. Uh, Our nation plagued by gun violence. Uh, This young woman's name is Emma Gonzalez, a student at uh, Stoneman Douglas High School, Florida. School shooting, I think it was 2018, 17 people killed. Uh, 14 students, three adults, she stood up uh, at the the March for Our Lives uh, and articulated a public expression of pain on a national scale. So this is about a two-minute clip.
1: Miss Sunshine, Alex Schechter would never walk into school with his brother Ryan, Scott Beagle would never joke around with Karen at camp, Helen Ramsey would never hang out after school with Max, Gina Montalto would never wave to her friend Liam at lunch, Joaquin Oliver would never play basketball with Sam or Dylan, Alina Petty would never, Kara Luggren would never, Chris Hickson would never, Luke Hoyer would never, Marquine New
0: So, I, I think that uh, one of the things that struck me most about that, when I watched that live, I think one of the things that surprised me most is that it was allowed to air. Uh, it was on all the channels, and it was six minutes and 20 seconds of so total size. No commercials, certainly no Dodge Ram commercials. Just six minutes straight. Total silence. And uh, I, I, I turned off the television and I thought. That was a piercing of the armor. I don't know where it's going to go. But it's an extraordinary event of a public expression of pain. That uh, made possible. Uh, a new imagination about the way things can be for, for our nation. This is a, that was a a prophetic silence. Uh, so I have no idea if she's Christian or not. I, I I don't know. I I don't care. She offered a prophetic uh, demonstration of grief that, uh, The royal consciousness never would have given rise to it. A few minutes left. I welcome any questions you have.